0: This is the Tame Aperture Podcast.
1: Open the pod bay doors, pal.
0: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
2: Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we discuss movies from first-time directors, indie films, an art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we continue October's horror month by taking a deep dive into the 1999 trend-setting film The Blair Witch Project by first-time directors, Daniel Merrick, and Eduardo Sanchez. Filming began on October 23, 1997, and after a short eight days of production, concluded on Halloween in the backwoods of Maryland. After months of editing, the film made its premiere in January of 1999 at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, and was purchased by Artisan Entertainment for $1.1 million. The film enjoyed a wide theatrical release starting in July of 1999, and running through the end of the year and beyond the 82-minute film would go on to gross over $250 million worldwide on a next-to-nothing budget of just $60,000, making it one of the most commercially successful movies in film history. So let's take a deeper look into what made this movie spark. I'm Gabe Wienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined today by veteran podcaster and horror fanatic Alan Martindale and on the phone from the backwoods of Washington State, screenwriter and film instructor, Todd Mayatani. Todd, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
2: Good, good. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Well, let's get into this a little bit. So, The Blair Witch Project. I'd like you each to kind of tell me your personal relationship to the film, just out the gate, maybe the first time you saw it, when you saw it, and how it resonated with you. And I'll start with with you, Todd. I'm going to put you on the spot here and and ask you to uh, give us a little backstory about what your relationship to the film is.
0: Okay. Um, this is the first film that uh, I think uh, resonated with me because my friend told me about it before I went to the theater. And I, and I think that's an important aspect with this particular movie is that they set it up so well in planning in my head that I would be scared going into the film. Um, and I think it's say from what they heard uh, just all the buzz about it, that was an important marketing aspect to the success of this film. So my friends, you know, they, 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 they told me, oh, if we heard about this film. Uh, people were just freaking out and standing in the theaters just trying to see what it was all about. Um, I think it, uh, on, a, on another level, it was one of the first, you know, found footage type of more interactive kind of a movie. And, and all, of, all of that was pretty novel, at the time, and so when I went to it, in in my mind, I think, okay, I'm going to be scared, and it's going to be a new experience for me, and it it delivered, it delivered by all means, but I think I had preemptively prepared to be scared, uh, and and, and was kind of looking for those, you know, screaming moments, Uh, so when I went went and saw it, uh, uh, you know, it, it definitely... Uh, was pretty creepy and eerie, and it, it, psychologically I think it played on a lot of um, fears that I had growing up, you know, just, just being in the woods by yourself camping or uh, hearing noises outside your tent, and then the just the, um, the mythology behind witches, you know. Uh, um, I, I think they, they really did a lot of um, great storytelling in what you don't see, and um, uh, not overdoing it. I mean, there's there's not a lot of blood and gore, which also can be scary in this film, but I think it plays on um, more of the gestalt effect where it's just like they set it up or I create my own horror inside of my mind, and uh, that's why I think it was, for me, a a really good movie and and such, such a success and kind of a trendsetter.
2: Now let me ask you this: When you left the theater after watching it with your friends, and after they had hyped it up, were you scared, or was it more just along the lines of what you explained, which is like, "Oh, I can, I can relate." But there was no sh- the thing about the film is there's no real shock and awe in in scream moments, right? Right. right. <clears throat> so, Alan, what about you? When you left, so go ahead, Todd. Sorry. Well, oh, I just to say, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I think that the ending was a little bit ambiguous um and it just it just kind of freaked you out like who who, who was holding the camera um uh, did you know uh the witch obviously was was there in the room and um i think there wasn't an, they they didn't lend to any closure for you so that was another important aspect i think is like you, this this wherever this monster is uh, it, it's still out there
2: yeah and i think we'll get more into that as we go on but that initial uh, relationship is you and your friends hyping it up and and selling it to you in a way that made you feel excited to go see the film. And then when you left the theater, did that same excitement excitement continue to resonate with you, or was it, was it uh, absent?
0: It, it did. It did. It, it did. And, and I think that's another big factor. If you are expecting even more, it's, it's hyped up, and it doesn't deliver, then it's even a worse, you know, Kind Of a letdown, yeah.
2: so because I had a similar yeah. experience, and I'll tell you mine, but I'd like to hear what Alan has to say kind of what the relationship to the film is on that first time that you saw it.
1: Well, it Todd, it's funny that you said that you had friends who hyped you up. I was the guy hyping everybody up for this movie, I because I, <laughs> I remember when I saw it, um, I saw advertisements, and if I remember right, it wasn't playing everywhere. They did that thing where it was like select theaters, and then they kind of build out the marketing, and you get really hyped and excited for it.
2: Yeah, it had a limited release, and then that was followed by a wider release Yeah, later.
1: and as soon as it came out here in Salt Lake, I was like first in line, got to see it. And I left there just just kind of floored, just kind of floored, because that ending, and we'll get to the ending, obviously, but that ending is just, it, to me, it's one of the best endings in a movie ever. And um, so I was the guy who was out there telling my friends, you got to see this movie. And I think I traumatized a couple of my friends. Uh, I had a couple friends who were like, "That's not scary. The, the, none of this was scary." And I'm just sitting there, be like, "How
2: are you not scared by this? This
1: this is terrifying to me."
2: So I was one of those. So I was one of those friends. You were the guy out there hyping it up. Yes. You were the, out, the guy out there telling all your buddies, like Todd, to go and watch the movie. And uh, I was a late bloomer because it sounds like you were an early mover. You got in and saw it when it first came out into theaters in mm-hmm. your local city. And I moved late. We grew up in the same city. I was in Salt Lake, but I didn't see it until it had to have been later October, early November, mm-hmm. maybe later even. And I remember walking out of the theater going, what the hell was that? It was the dumbest ass movie I've ever seen in my life.
1: Well, and that's why I love this movie because it kind of you kind of see where people uh, reside on, the, on the, 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 the terrifying scale because some people it really freaked out and terrified and other people they weren't affected at all by it.
2: And part of it was my own, like when you're a teenager, you're a little bit, you're a little bit overconfident. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And I was, I'm an Eagle Scout. So I was like, I'd fuck that Blair Witch up <laughs> <laughs> in the woods. I know how to build a lean to yeah, and yeah. build a fire. Build my Eagle Scout and build, yeah, yeah. And yeah. do my home alone maneuvers. <laughs> 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 so it just didn't, it's funny on the initial viewing now, now Todd and, and Alan, this was a, a rewatch for me. I really haven't watched this film since that time now this came out in 1999 i was a senior in high school and my friends similar to your guys has built it up some of them were really amping it some of them were like and i walked out on that other end of the uh, or the other side of it which was like eh, it was okay i didn't Mm -hmm. really like it and so we're kind of in this in this ground of like a, a split territory on it i think that the the filmmakers did some amazing things, which I think we'll get into in terms of the concept and their execution of that concept. But I remember leaving the theater and that initial response to the film was kind of blah mm-hmm. for me.
1: I mean, I can understand mm-hmm. that. I can understand that. But God, it just every time it would be nighttime, I would just start freaking out.
2: Now, here's the thing. It, that was not the response from a mass audience because obviously people were interested in the film. And it went on to, at the time, be one of the highest grossing films ever made, in, 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 in contrast to the money that the budget mm-hmm. that it was made for. So um, obviously, it resonated in some in some way with people. Now, going back after, now it's been 20 years. It's 2019, it's on its 20th anniversary. Matter of fact, they're going to do this special screening somewhere, somewhere in back east of a, yeah. the, the whole team will come, the whole crew, and everyone will watch it again. But after 20 years, re watching it now. So that initial response was blah, and over the growth of my own kind of filmmaking adventures and my own process as a filmmaker and a storyteller, there's been different uh, takeaways since this last watching that I did in preparation for this podcast. So I want to get into that a little bit, um, but I think it's funny. I, th- I would I would say that you're on the side of of loving it, Alan. Mm-hmm. T, Definitely. are you on that same on that same? Uh, on that same uh, line as, as Alan on the first watch. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is where we can start to argue points and start to look at the film for what it is. And uh, we can take contrary opinions as we, as we go through kind of this, the story of what the Blair witch is from beginning to end and kind of going through the, taking it, taking the, taking the listeners all the way through the storyline and then breaking out some analytical points that we think are good or bad and kind of looking at it from that perspective. So, um, the initial approach to the film, uh, which is, uh, a documentary, right? It's these three student filmmakers N- now that I could resonate with. And I loved because I love the idea of like just three student filmmakers going out and making something, uh, for nothing and just trying to figure out how to make a movie. Right. Right. So that was a cool concept for me. Uh, and I think also in high school, I was already doing that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. So like you're grabbing the dad's Hi8 Sony and you're going out and filming stuff with your friends. And so for me, that was kind of fun. That's what kept me in the adventure, at least in the beginning was that, uh, I was going to follow these kids that I could relate to.
1: Well, and it's, it's so like the pretentious film student, uh, aspect of it. It's just so strong in Heather, especially Yeah. just the whole, her whole thing. It's like, I know those people. I've, I've, I've gone to school with those people before. Her, whole,
2: her whole thesis is, is like, I'm the director. Yes. And we're going to do what I
1: say. Exactly. And
2: this ends up leading them into the downfall right. of the right. story. So they go through, they, they end think, up... Go ahead, Todd.
0: I, I think it's a good setup because, you know, they're, they're, this is one of their first films. And so there's a lot of uh, naivety in this. They, they don't know a lot about production or what it's going to take. But their curiosity is stronger, you know, and it's just drawing them out there. I think the exposition is always really good too for a documentary approach because they're building off of an urban legend, and so there a lot was established in terms of fear and setting it up uh, before they even left.
2: And I think that that's a great that goes along the lines of like how they set it up before people even saw it. I mean, some people saw it at Sundance, and obviously they liked it, and they bought it—a distributor, Artisan Entertainment. Then the marketing took over, because the strength yeah. of the film, to me, is middle ground. It's not uh, now for—it's also a product of its time. So, yeah. what what you're saying, and I agree with Todd, which is like the the premise of the our, uh, building a. A lore or a legend, and then building into that as your exposition to the story, that is cool. But also, if you think about it now, that's kind of a product of its time because you can't do that the same way today that you could back in 1999. And so their timing was flawless. Do you know? Totally. Internet was, you know, was prolific. It was starting to build. It was starting to democratize. People were starting to get into it a lot heavier. People were able to get online and read these things, and now we're just inundated with it today. Right, right. So it's kind of a product of its time in the sense that they were able to build that exposition through the marketing.
0: They, I think they really saw into the future. You know, the we they have, we're trying to reinvent versions of the Blair Witch, and I think um, it still has a popular following. It, instead of a, a movie, though, it's like you have, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's and Slenderman Man, where you kind of have the same approach that just like you're placed in the forest at night and something's going after you. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of translated into different medium, but it, it's still kind of holding to that original Blair Witch uh, style.
2: Yeah. And like you said, like them being able to foresee that part of the genius of their marketing. Because if if they don't market it the way that they do and they don't realize the internet's as strong a tool as Mm -hmm. it is, then the film doesn't do what it does.
1: Oh, for sure. I think it'd be just a a cult classic a few people would would remember, but I don't think it ever would have been a phenomenon.
2: I would venture to say it would be not even a cult classic. It would be a small independent film that traveled through festivals and never really got seen. Yeah, I think you're right. So I think building that exposition is a great tool a super super genius on their side to kind of build that in so let's talk about that legend just a little bit to give people a context on it which is the blair witch and it's this history or this idea that there's a blair there's a witch sorry out in the middle of the woods in maryland um outside the town of bakertsville burkittsville burkittsville Burkittsville,
1: Burkittsville, which was named
2: blair which was previously named blair and this was all the directors and the storytellers uh, fabricating this mm-hmm. legend. So outside of the the town of Burkittsville is a witch who gets the history to it is she. I, and I was reading about this. Uh, I don't know if you looked into this at all, but she gets outcast to the woods from the town. This witch. Right. This right. is some of the, the history that you can read online and things like that. She gets outcast. To, because she's—I can't remember what she's done, but she's done something for the town to outcast her. So she goes out into the woods, and then uh, now there's this. She goes out, there's this legend of this witch who lives out there in the woods, out by herself, haunting people or terrorizing people, right?
1: Yeah, and well, and then they tie it into a, a child killer.
2: And this is this is before the 1940s thing that they bring up in the okay. actual movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then the whole concept is later in 1940. Then there's a, a child killer who who takes ten, uh, seven kids yep. from the town. yeah. And the way that he murders these children is he takes them into the basement and then two by two takes them down and one has to look in the corner so that I guess he had some kind of heart there, like some kind of sympathetic. He, he didn't want yeah. the other kid to see the other the kid. The line of murdered.
1: dialogue is he couldn't take the eyes on him while he's killing the first kid. Yeah. So I I don't understand.
2: So maybe it's just you know, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a character character sympathy point. Well, or... I
1: think I think the whole point is he's being possessed. Like I think that's what they're trying to say. And then he's it being leads, possessed by the witch. Cuz
2: he comes back out after killing these seven children and they and ultimately confesses to the town and ultimately says it's this previous lore of this legend of this witch and she had possessed me and kind of guided me to murder these kids. Yeah. 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 So, that... I kind
0: of find it. Was, I, I, think, I think my friend just saying, I don't know if this has happened to you before, but a freaky experience people have is they'll wake up from a dream and you can't move for like three or four seconds. You're just kind of frozen in your you're shock. Yeah. Has that ever happened to you?
1: Sleep paralysis. It, building on I've heard of it.
0: That paralysis. Sleep paralysis, yeah. So, I, I, I think it was, it's like you have to watch this horrific thing happen and you can't do anything about it. Uh, I think it... I heard a horrific story like the... Um, the anesthesiologist got it wrong during a surgery and so it, it it paralyzed the patient, but it didn't give the patient the sedative and so the patient had to endure the surgery without any kind of sedative. And and it, it's just kind of like that, that punishment and pain where you have literally no control and something's happening in front of you uh, on the stage. And, and I think that's a great setup for horror films. Um, it, rather than being a weak character, like, oh, what's in the basement? It's dark, I'm going to walk down there. And it, but like you're a strong character, but you're just paralyzed and you have to enter it no matter what.
2: I think that's all. So, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling of being scared. I mean, we talked about it in the nightmare podcast when I was a six six year old kid. Like that that fear of not being able to move. Like yeah. you're so caught up in what's yeah. happening that you physically you're paralyzed or or have a form of uh, paralysis. Right, yeah. right. So that that is a a frightening thing. But nonetheless, it's this idea of the Blair Witch who's out there. You know, possessing people, and then going. The, the lore goes on that this guy is possessed of her and kills these children. And so, these are what these three filmmakers go out to 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 discover. They're kind of investigating. They're documentarians or they're aspiring filmmakers mm-hmm. from college, and they're trying to figure this story out. So they go through and they start going at the first part of the movie. They go around and start asking uh, the local township questions about this. Have you heard of the Blair Witch?
1: Right. And I thought this was really cool how they set all this stuff up because they they uh, the directors peppered kind of uh, what do they call just uh, um, not real townspeople within within the township. So they're going around and they're talking. Some people haven't heard of the Blair Witch, but then they talk to others who actually give elaborate stories about what has happened. And those are actually plants from from the directors who are just kind of thrown in the town to make it seem more realistic.
2: Yeah. No, that's a that it kind of builds it up. It has, and then it that helps build it up a little more to the payoff later. Yes. At the end of the film. Right. Because you have that exposition. So going into these characters, you have three of them uh, Josh, Mike, and Heather. And I liked how they built the characters into it. You could tell immediately that Josh and heather had some kind of relationship they were just friends mm-hmm. and they were either in film school together had something and it sounds to me like mike was an add-on and it's kind of that feeling like when you're in film school like you're yeah. trying to get anybody to come help you do your yes. project yeah yep. you know yeah and so you even if you, oh i don't know mike that well neither do i but mike said Doesn't he'd matter. do audio yeah so you bring this guy in and so mike's this third this third person in the trio um, and their characters are a little bit, like you mentioned before, there's a little bit of pretentious nature to them because they're filmmakers and they, they're trying to figure out how to do this thing. Uh, they go around the town. They, they get some exposition. We as a viewer get some exposition about the lore and the legend of the Blair Witch. And then they finally make it out into uh, and the whole time they're building the documentary. So there's two actual viewpoints here. One viewpoint is the actual 16 millimeter camera that's filming the documentary that Heather's putting together. And the other is like the VHS or the, the, sorry, the, uh, the video camcorder that's actually just recording the experience of putting the documentary together. Right. 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 So there's kind of two parallels here of, of things going on and they're intercutting between, uh, these two pieces of footage, one being Mm -hmm. the actual documentary that they were putting together and one being just fly on the wall video camcorder uh you know observational let me grab the camcorder and just follow you guys around while we make this thing right, right. almost bts in a way like behind right. the scenes in right. a sense
1: well i just a little uh and this is kind of one of the problems with the movie but also is kind of makes it endearing to me is these guys didn't know how to operate a camera these actors were actors, you know, they didn't know how to do it. And so there's one scene when they're, when they're filming Mary Brown and it's totally out of focus Yeah. because Josh, who's supposed to be the cinematographer has no idea how to measure for focus on this camera whatsoever. And they even allude to it kind of in the film, but it's just, it's these little imperfections that make it feel more real to me. And I think it's, it's these imperfections that a lot of people harp on why partly why they don't like it. But to me, that's what makes it so endearing.
2: I also think it lends itself to a little confusion for me because, and this is one. And and so you're talking about these little imperfections. And so that's when I start getting nitpicky. Yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. And so part of these uh, slight imperfections have to do with the two cameras because at the the opening title card of the film talks about three film students going out into the woods of Maryland to make a documentary. uh, And then they disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then the footage was found a year later. Yeah. And the footage is just miraculously played out in this really kind of great way. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's just kind of nicely edited and put together, even right. if it's stop and record and getting different actions of things that it's kind of beautifully laid out. Yeah. So did someone edit this actual footage? that they must, found? Have, yeah, must have, yeah. Okay. Been, I, don't, I don't know if it's It's a technicality. Or, yeah, exactly, exactly. For <laughs> me, because I'm looking at it going, there's no way that it just pieced itself together this right. perfectly while they were going through the forest. Right, right. <laughs> T any words on that?
0: Um I, I think with the with along the lines of the edit, they they're trying to keep a documentary style, uh, but it, I, I think they took a big risk because in most horror films, the audience usually knows more uh ahead of what's going to happen to the characters to build the suspense and they went away with from that and so their discovery is our discovery at the same time. And there was no lead for us to prepare. So I think that that contributed to, you're just kind of always insecure through the whole movie. You don't really find a base. It, and it, it was, a, it's just kind of slow lead into, you know, it's what's going to happen. They're going to the forest, you know, they're unprepared, uh, these film students. And uh, so you ha- kind of have that at, to, to build upon. But once they're there, they're just walking around, and, and it's just kind of like you're going through this haunted house, and you just just walking around for a few hours, and and something, you know, something's going to happen, but you don't. There's really no story, in terms of, hey, this where well, they're going to end up here, and this is going to happen. It just starts to fall apart, and I think that was a risky thing, but it paid off.
1: I think you just kind of nailed why I love this movie so much, because so many times in horror movies they telegraph everything that's going to happen. And you may not know the exact specifics, but you know there's going to be a jump scare at this point, and they're going to go into a dark house, and it's going to be a long, drawn-out shot with lots of intense music. And, and this, I think you're right. Like, you don't – you're always on edge because every time it – like I said, every time it would get nighttime in the movie, I started to really get uncomfortable because every night it gets worse and worse. And so I think you're right. Like, you don't – nothing's telegraphed. You don't know what's going to happen. And this is the first time – most people had seen a found footage movie. So it's very, very scary.
2: Yeah, I think for that. So <clears throat> I, I this is what we were talking about at the beginning, which is I'm on the other side. So at, at times when you were building up the uh, the anticipation and the tension and you were wondering what's going to happen because you were traveling this storyline with the characters, which is a great tool and I agree with. But for me, the way there were moments of it where there had a little bit of that, but then at other moments where I literally, I think I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I can see that. So, so I get that. And I think that it is, it's not that it's not done well. I think there's moments to it that are, but it's so. it, it almost has such a repetitive nature that I almost start to lose interest. And and I'm I'm gonna go into the conventional form of storytelling, which is I, I like my little plot devices that kind mm. of tell me things. So I did like eventually when we started seeing, the different uh, uh, the the branches being put together or the little tokens, right, right, of stuff out there because that kind of reinvigorated my interest. Sure. Um, versus yeah. just kind of waiting for the night to fall and then then to get in the tent and then what's gonna happen, and I was dozing off. So the little I liked. You know, there were moments that were boring for me, that I was like, literally, like, this is a waste of my time to watch. Um,
1: And I I think the original cut was like an hour longer than the actual runtime, if I remember right.
2: God save us all. Yeah,
1: seriously. (laughs) I mean, how long? How long? How much can you watch some people be lost in the woods before it just gets it super annoying? See, I was entertained the whole time because. To me, this isn't a movie about a witch. This is a movie about people losing their mind in the woods. It's
2: a psychological... Th- it's 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 not even so much a horror film as it is like a psychological thriller. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? Right. Um, Based on lore and legend. Like, right. lore and legend is the monsters.
1: Oh, f- well, for sure. I mean, I don't know if, if you guys have ever been hiking, but... I mean, a couple years ago... I just
2: told you I was an Eagle Scout. Well, that's true.
1: So you've been hiking every... Well, maybe you don't have this problem of getting lost then.
2: <laughs> you i I know how to Eagle use Scout. a compass yeah. and a map.
1: But I've been, I've been hiking and... I've lost my way. Like I've lost the trail before by myself in the woods. And that's when your brain actually does start to think, what if there's something out here? Like forget all the animals that could kill me, forget the snakes. What if there's actually something out here in the, in the trees? It's scary.
2: Yeah. They did play well into that. Cause I have been, I have even, this was before I got my Eagle. <laughs> okay. okay. So there's an excuse. For <laughs> yeah. It. yeah. No, but I've been, I've been lost in the woods before and, and, and you're out there and that, that, they did play into that really well. And I liked the up and down of it. Mm-hmm. So like there was scenes where Heather uh, would be filming and Mike would be getting pissed off. Yeah. And then it would do a jump cut. And the, the next moment, Mike was kind of, uh, he felt bad for what he was doing or vice versa. And there, it was the up and down emotionality. Right. The roller coaster of like getting real pissed and frustrated and then coming down it's off real. of that. It's so real. They played into that really well. Yeah. Which I liked a lot. Yeah. Definitely. That, that That section of it makes sense. And it is psychological that for way. For sure. Yeah um but
0: uh you mentioned it, you mentioned a, at the beginning you talked about kind of a false from grace too because they had all the power I think they knew the story or they thought they knew the story and they were going to go document it but part of the psychological fall is, is that slowly they start to believe that this is a real thing haunting them uh instead of them documenting it so the power kind of there's this it takes a long time and I think that's why some people get bored, but there's that slow power shift to where instead of them controlling the camera, which is this like supposed to be this omniscient, all seeing eye to they're being, you know, voyeuristically watched by something and, and haunted by something and, and ultimately chased by something. And so that, I think that was one of the mechanics of the film is you're, you're utilizing this, this camera that is supposed to see everything and document it to your, instead of that working for to your advantage as a tool, you're being watched by something the whole time. And, and then the audience, you know, plays along pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, they're sutured into it, they're, they're, they're stuck because the camera's not working for them anymore.
2: Right. And there is kind of this structure where we're observing them. Being observed by someone else, yeah. yeah, do you know what I mean? It's this inception type horror <laughs> 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 where like there's layers to it, so we're watching this documentary yeah. being and these people are being like you mentioned in almost in a voyeuristic way which is an interesting viewpoint uh being watched, they're being watched right so that's 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 an interesting take on it um which i which I enjoy um did did you like uh I found it interesting, the actors of the movie. And talk about that for a minute, which is like you have Josh, Mike, and Heather, which is their real names, by the way. Mm -hmm. And as the directors went into this film, they didn't have a full-blown script. They just had a 30-page, 30-plus-page outline uh, conceptually of what was going on. Apparently, the actors learned different um, uh, structures in the story as they were going. And and so each day was kind of new for them. And I think that's a real genius, fun way. It's very experimental in a sense, which is like, let's go out into the woods and see what happens if we try to make a movie. Right. And um, so I applaud them for that because it's very it's very uh, kind of ballsy to go. Let's see if we can't put something together without having a real solid solidified detail outline for these actors to follow. You almost have to really Strongly depend on good actors, and I thought when I look at the film for that through that lens, I go, these actors are really good. Mm -hmm. I thought they were. I thought thought their performances were really strong.
1: And I think a lot of it's because what they were feeling was actually real, because every day the directors would give them a little bit less food. Yeah. So they're getting more. They're getting hungry, or they're having. They're forcing to walk further. Yeah. So they're they're getting more tired. They're they're definitely the tempers are flaring naturally, and so I think what they're I think the whole idea of making this as real as possible really played off because I don't know. And I, I haven't seen these guys in other things, but I just can't imagine no name actors, their first kind of feature are going to be that proficient. So I think, I think the director's choice to really try and put them on edge and make it real was very, very smart. It also could have gone terribly bad, but. And that's the thing. I think,
2: I think there's a lot of, uh, they, you know, when you look at filmmaking and putting something together, like there's a lot of, a luck involved in some in some ways. It's not just about your experience and not just about what you have on the table in terms of a good story, like it has to be these other pieces that just kind of miraculously come together, yep. and these actors really hit it because it could have gone the other way. And uh, aside from some of the, the parts that I don't like about the film, I really enjoyed uh, the actors did keep it engaging for me and their performances. It felt authentic and real, and it felt it kept me in that found footage mm-hmm. mindset. For sure, you know. For sure, um, and you could have taken that many ways, and then it could have thrown that found footage mindset off. Well, I mean, have you? I don't know if you've seen
1: a lot of found footage movies, but there's a lot of them where it's clear that there's a script, and it doesn't. It just doesn't work. You can't do it for this genre because it immediately feels like a movie. Yeah, and it's not supposed to feel like a movie.
2: No, that's an interesting point. And um, looking at the found footage, I mean, is there another? If you're looking at the 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 history of film, do we have another found footage? But what other found footage I'm sure there are, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but what other are there other found footage films out there? And if so, did they do as did they portray the found footage quote unquote genre the same way that this did, or did this really revolutionize this whole this whole segment of 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 the horror thriller genre
1: well i'm so glad you asked that because i because there are two other found footage movies that technically came out before blair witch i think i want to say in 1978 there's one called cannibal holocaust okay which is no one should watch that movie it is brutal i mean it's just not even it's it's beyond belief i mean it's it's basically these people go into the amazon forest to try and make a documentary about uh, these tribes. And it's just brutal. There's actual real life animal massacres. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty grotesque. And I watched it kind of in preparation. It's one of those movies where as a horror fan, I know I'm supposed to watch it, but I just never wanted to. Yeah. But I finally did.
2: And then you watched it and went, maybe I didn't want to watch that. It actually,
1: well, I'm glad you did though. I I am too. Like it wasn't as bad as I thought. I built it up in my mind, but it's still pretty, it's pretty rough. So that was kind of the first one. I mean, and that was the first found footage, and they actually put the director on trial in Italy for murder because they thought he had filmed a snuff film. Like it was it, but looking at it, it doesn't feel real. Right, it really doesn't feel real. Right. And then there was another movie, and there's kind of a misconception that Blair Witch stole uh, the idea from this movie, but it's not because Blair Witch was actually in production before this movie was technically released. Okay. And it's called The Last Broadcast, and it's <laughs> about a. Uh, 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 a documentary or a, a like a cable access TV show that they're going out into the pine barrens of New Jersey to find the Jersey Devil, and it's very similar. But uh they, I, I think it was, I think Blair Witch actually the conception came out or, or was was developed way before the conception for the Last Broadcast. So those are the, but those were released before Blair Witch. Okay. So I watched both of those kind of preparing for this. They are not even in the same like it doesn't. The last broadcast feels real at times, but it's not really scary. It's more of a mystery. This one just totally, re- I mean, it just feels real. Yeah. Because they're actually in the situation like this. Like it's, to me, it just it revolutionized and kind of ruined the genre.
2: So it's fair to give them the throne.
1: Yes. Oh, I think so, without a doubt. Just
2: based on what we're talking about and the research that you've done and you've yeah. kind of thought, like Blair Witch is the originator. Of this idea of like found footage, I think so, yeah. In in a in a in a very very scary psychological way. Yes, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, Cannibal Holocaust was just meant to shock. That's all it was there for, basically. Where this was really trying to do something totally different. Right. Yeah.
2: Well, that's interesting, because um, I, I have not seen The Last Broadcast or Cannibal Holocaust. It sounds like I should go watch both of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't, don't watch Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. Not fun. It's an exercise in endurance basically is all it is <laughs> cuz it's just constant you you never get a breathe you, you don't you don't get a breather at all
2: yeah do and that's the other thing i think for me you know there's too many breathers in this film in the blair with, for me yeah this is kind of the and opposite and so it's yeah. kind of the opposite now i'm not you know and i'll go back to this which is like there's just moments where you they've kind of established the frustrations and they keep i wanted to, i wanted it to continue to move and so like they talk about the night coming around and then three days this we've been doing this for three days and they've been. So I'm like, okay, well what's the next thing? Cause otherwise I'm just watching these guys. Mm-hmm. And even though they built it well, like it's not in the back of my head it, some, there are moments when I'm watching it and I'm going, it's not really, I'm forgetting in a sense that it's found footage for sure. Like I'm watching it going, okay, but what's the next part of the story? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, not realizing sure. that, Hey, um, this is not, this is just a bunch of kids that were out in the, the woods with the camera. Right. I'm thinking the movie maker in me going, but what's the next part of the story? We need to get to
1: a plot point here. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So there's a little bit of that for me. Um, but that's interesting I, on those I other topics that, of the genre. I think it's the originator of it all.
0: I heard they were trying to um, purposely, uh, instead of make you psychologically frustrated, it's overall just frustrated. I heard people were passing out in the theaters because you're watching this shaky camera kind of like Cloverfield kind of footage, you know, where it's just, it, it, it makes you dizzy, it makes you nauseous. And then over time, with those lulls, I think that, um, uh, I think, Alan, you were saying that, you know, the first cut was a lot, lot longer. Um, and they're trying to see how long can you physically <laughs> annoy and frustrate people yeah. to where they start to break down. And that that was, that's risky is you're really physically making people annoyed and frustrated in a theater a- instead of them, like, being in control. A- and I-, I think it was just enough to make you uh, uneasy because you're like, okay, get on with it. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? But part of that is that that waiting game where you're, you're kind of, like, stuck in a room. And, you know, we pay for that kind of stuff now where you're like get-out games where... There's a, you know there's a way out, but this is you're stuck in this maze here, going around in circles for days and nothing is happening. And I think that's one of the first experiences where they took a lot of risk because you're physically and mentally draining your audience.
2: Yeah, And there's two types of people in those scenarios. the ones that faint because the anxiety's too much, and the others that sit there twiddling their thumbs, wondering what's happening next. <laughs>
0: I knew that was coming. Yeah, what's going to happen
2: next? And I'm I'm on the other side of that, (laughs) you know, because that's just the way my ticker works. Like people's heart, you know, their anxiety builds in a different way. And uh, for me, uh, I was finding myself twiddling my thumbs. I do remember coming out of the theater 20 years ago. Remember coming out with my buddies and just shaking my head.
1: You couldn't believe it.
2: I think all of them, but maybe one other liked it. There was a group of like six or seven of us. Everyone was talking about how great it was. And I didn't dare to step up. I I recall. I was like, I was like, yeah, it was good. But in my head, I was like, this was so let down the shittiest movie. Let's go. What else came out in 1999? (laughs) Let's go to deep blue sea. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Just kidding. I
1: think basketball came out then too. Basketball.
2: (laughs) No, but, but you're right, Todd. I think they're, they're playing into that. And I think it, like structurally, it works because you're either going to get one of two feelings—one of boredom or one of anxiety—and and so depending on where you fall on that spectrum, um, they played into that nicely, and it was it was a creative way to do it for sure. The shaky camera also, uh, for for having a such a slow resting heart rate, uh, I do get sick when the shaky camera starts going. Yeah. On the big screen, I I just can't do it. When yeah. they're running around, I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, I got it. I got to have a place for my eyes to focus. That,
1: that was one of the most frustrating things for me watching this movie is just just film it. Just set it down on a rock or something. Like it, yeah. They were just such bad cinematographers. They couldn't even hold a camera.
2: Which plays into their character. absolutely. But also, I agree with you because there's moments that I liked where uh, Heather, there's a scene where... This is, by the way, and we're going to get into this, Josh's disappearance, the mystery of Josh's disappearance. But this is after Josh disappears, and Heather is sitting there, and you see her put the camera down, and Mike's over there having a smoke, and she goes over and puts her head on his shoulder and just kind of... I kind of like those little reprieves yeah. of just, like, letting the... That almost felt more authentic when someone wasn't behind the camera. Yeah. And, and they were just setting it down on the rock. It goes to the last shot, too. Once the camera hits still... Oh. That's a creepy shot. That's a well executed shot. It's funny. So the moments where there wasn't a cam op behind the lens, uh, had some more, uh, observational quality for me as a viewer to really believe, uh, that we were observing this quote unquote found footage. Right. Right. It's like, you know, it's interesting because nowadays, and and I want to get back to this topic and then we'll get into Josh's disappearance. Uh, and, and get into some of the lore of like what leads up to the final plot of them getting to the house and finding Mike in the corner. Um, and, and we talked about, we alluded about this a little earlier, but I do want to highlight it and get your guys' thoughts on it. This doesn't carry the same weight today that it did 20 years ago. And I think that's, and, and we'll go back into this, but I want to go back into it more, mainly because the internet is now inundated with creators, creators and there's reality shows and we were talking about this observation, like there's a reality show called Alone on National Geographic. They dump a bunch of people out in the hills of Alaska. Oh, God. The last frontier. Really? And these guys have their own cameras. So they have to set the camera down, position them in the different spots, and then they have to last like 60 days or whatever the number of days is. Oh, my God. And so that, and that's real. Right. You know, or at least it's uh, made up to be real. I don't. You never know. Yeah, yeah. With reality, with production, shows, you never right. know. But what my point is is, you can't come out with Blair Witch today. No, no way. There's no way to do it. Is there a way to come out with something as uniquely new, and invigorating, and like we mentioned, they're the originator of this genre, and it's led into so many other concepts. Reality TV existed before Blair Witch, but when you get into the early 2000s moving forward, re- reality TV blows up mm-hmm. beyond what we could ever imagine and YouTube and all the internet. And now we have these shows that basically emulate this structure, which is like people out in the woods by themselves, you know, right. trying to survive. Well, and if, if this hadn't been released when it
1: did, what would, I mean, I, I think there's a whole genre that doesn't even happen. And that's the found footage horror genre. I don't think it happens at all, because this thing blew up, and then ten years later you had Paranormal Activity, yeah, and then it just it's kind of gone from there. I just I don't I don't don't think anyone would try and capitalize on it. I'm sure someone would would have come up with the idea, and there would be movies, but I'm not so sure it would have been as big.
2: And you talk about something in comparison with like Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. which is the only other one I can think of that kind of uh compares in a way to this film although they're differently they're different storylines. Mm-hmm. the way they're made and the way they they were built as a film it's the only one i can think comparatively that would would be uh, for sure for some form of competition for for it. sure and i don't think in 2019 you can do that i don't think I'm, so i'm trying to figure out how you would even emulate any kind of this structure in because we're not as intimidated, we kind of know now we're prepared. Right. Yeah. We go, oh, we've seen these things. We're we jaded know. a little bit, yeah. And sure. so over time, it, it as I
0: think the tech, the technology destroys it, right? Because you know, you're 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 lost ten minutes in the woods. Someone's going to have a, a satellite tracker on your phone, and they're going to be found. Or you know, the so everybody's got their phones, where there's a way to you know post a Facebook, help. I'm in the woods, or.
2: Yeah, the um, only outlet you have we, now is my phone has no signal.
0: Yep, yeah. I'm no, not getting battery,
2: GPS. Right? But then you have GPS <laughs> trackers, right? That don't, you know. Yeah. So it's an interesting uh, display of how how it would carry the weight same weight today versus 20 years ago, and it just wouldn't. So the timing of these I guys think, I think, was meticulous. I, was
0: say, I think the our attention span. I think the, the generation currently, you know, they're not going to want to sit for an hour, an hour and a half um, being frustrated. It'll be like a 10-minute experience. It'll be a short, shorter experience. And then the, uh, the on, onset of all, all these, like, um, uh, 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 video games that kind of have that Blair Witch experience where you can turn off the lights and walk around for as long as you want, uh, they're in control of that threshold where if it gets uncomfortable then you just turn it off, you know. Um, yeah. And so I think there there's so many competing experiences nowadays that it would be difficult to recreate that much okay.
2: So we'll go back into the story because I want to get into this. So they're out in the woods, these things start happening, they're hearing things, they're getting scared, they're 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 it's the night and as night comes, little tokens are being left outside their tent. And then after like three nights, they're lost. By the way, which we talked about, you know, the map and Heather not being. She's been walking one direction the whole time, and they're basically doing circles out in the woods. And then one night, Josh disappears. He goes running. You know, he's just gone. What happened to Josh? Can we can we get into this a little bit? Well, there's a theory, and I don't know if you want to get into it now. But I do. A, there's a theory Let's that go. that
1: uh there's no witch but Josh and Mike took Heather out there to kill her. Okay. That, that, that's the theory. There's a theory out there that that's what happened. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it.
2: I mean, there's some plausibility to that. For
1: sure, for sure. And they you know, and it just kind of worked out that Josh disappears and but think as an actor, think of how relieved he had to have been to be pulled out of that situation.
2: I did do a little research and he and and he was saying he was on a panel at a festival yeah and he was talking about how he got pulled out of that early because his character is knocked yeah. off and he w- couldn't have been more excited because there was a concert that he wanted to go see.
1: <laughs> no way. <laughs> he kind of seems like that kind of guy. I can't too.
2: remember if it was Alice in Chains. Yeah. Or there was a some. It was that kind of concert. He's like, I, I'm so glad to not have to work anymore.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> but, I mean, it's creepy because they come outside and he's gone. And, and this is after the whole tent fiasco with the kids outside. Because that's the scene that scarred me more than anything okay
2: let's talk about that one and then we'll get back was, to was the...
1: and i want to say that was the night before or two nights before josh disappears and they're in the tent and they hear stuff outside and i remember the first like five times i watched that i'm like what the hell is that because it's not and and i think they use sound really really well in this movie as well that's another thing because i'm kind of i'm a little bit of an audiophile where a sound really affects me and so the fact there's no music and you just kind of hear hints of stuff outside and you're like what is that and then there's uh, after after watching it so many times and turning up the sound i realized it's kids laughing and kids playing and there's this one kid who makes this really loud like sound and that's the one that just like made my hair stand up on end and freaked me out beyond belief and then when the tent starts shaking it's just like oh my god you got to be kidding me this is too much See, this is what won me over for this movie was that night.
2: That is a well-executed scene. And I think it's also because, well, what, it's funny because anytime you, you bring children, yes. whether for whatever uh, level you're bringing them in at, it always is gonna, it's going to resonate in some way a little harder. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You hear those. And, and this is where knowing that exposition helps because you hear those sounds. Mm-hmm. The tent shaking is also very scary because, once again, anybody that's gone camping there if if when i was, you were little and your dad yep. or your uncle came by and like shook your tent and oh you got a, it's a it's bear scary. yeah yeah you know and, you're, and it it gets your heart pumping uh and knowing that they're supposedly alone uh makes it scary mm-hmm. yeah for Very. sure it's a great scene that is a good scene it's well done uh into the perspective the, of these you, characters
0: you made a good point the audio so this is the first the non-diegetic sounds that are starting to appear and also supernatural proof or evidence uh, um, up until that point. I mean, you're, you're hearing the, just the wind blow, grass in the trees, just um, regular sounds of nature, and all of a sudden, there's real supernatural things going at play, and uh, it's at night, and um, I think that's the first evidence that whatever they're they're looking for is there in the woods, and that, I think that added to um, to the fear is that, oh, oh yeah, well, the, the whole time they're trying to prove that, that there's something out there and that when you start to hear unnatural sounds that, or supernatural sounds, then there is. And
1: that's what was tricky for me. Oh, it's just so scary. <laughs> and they're in the middle of the woods. They're just so far yeah. out
2: there. Or according to Alan's theory, this is Josh and Mike's friend Steve out in the woods with a recorder of children playing playback. Could be. Right. Because he there he's on it. Steve, a new character yeah, to the film. Yeah. Is now in on the on the prank. Exactly. Could to, be. You know, the the prank. Or not not a the, prank. The uh,
1: the murder. The murder. Straight of, up murder. Exactly. Yes. Well, and then they run <laughs> out. And and I, I remember the first time I watched this when they're like, what time is it? You know, it's five o'clock. The sun will, sun will be up in an hour. I remember feeling relief at hearing that. I'm like, Okay, okay, Well, In a there's few all, minutes are going to be I can't safe.
2: remember if it's the same scene because they say, I hope it's 5 o'clock, and then they go, it's only— That was an earlier one. That was an night. earlier one. Okay, like, oh, I fuck. <laughs> yeah, because he was upset that it was only yeah. 3 and he wanted it to be Exactly. Light. And then
1: yeah. they come back to the tent, and then there's— this is kind of the first foreshadowing that something's going to happen with Josh because all of his stuff has is scattered everywhere and it has jelly or something. Slime. Slime or ectoplasm or whatever you want to call it yeah. all over his stuff. And this is the first time he, there's a little bit of foreshadowing that something's going to happen with, with, with Josh. Josh. Yeah.
2: Or it's just how they wrote it. Exactly. When they were, see, because I'm liking this theory. I, I, the more I think about it, the more Josh I. This like Josh and Mike it. theory. Right. Uh, this is resonating. These guys are filmmakers. They're writing a story. Right. They're writing so a story. So the story is let Heather believe she's in charge. Right. And then come out with a bunch of slime, put it on my bag. That's a plot point to move it forward she was... so she believes it and we start moving into <laughs> it.
1: I'm... And think how much pleasure they had to take in that because she was a difficult director, man. She was difficult to, to deal with.
2: Well, there's always the possibility that Josh liked Heather and she, she you know pushed him off.
1: Could be that could be,
2: and that really ticked him off.
1: Because so Josh had a girlfriend. Yeah, yeah,
2: could be. Just saying, <laughs> this theory is interesting. We we'll get into that. No, but 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 though that there are some good scenes in there that they play up to it really well, and like you are mentioning with the sound and how they use the sound. Um, with the kids and kind of the supernatural elements to it. And those are, I think those are well played out and well, well thought out scenes. Sorry. T what else? What uh, can we get to Josh's disappearance
0: I, now? That we I, c- I'm just, I'm, I'm hearing the fruit for that theory that they went out there to murder her. Um, I heard other theories from my friends and, and I think, they played out all these scenarios before in the marketing because they wanted you to kind of figure it out for yourself. But I heard that, that there was actually the murderer guy was still out there so he could be preying upon them instead of the witch. And oh, yeah. Another theory, Another theory. I think that over time that I, I've come to kind of uh, believe more over time is that there's like, the, like a group of, of witch supporters or a cult or something because you hear, hear about all these groups that can formulate pretty quickly now and um, they'll meet in the woods and practice whatever you want. Um, they could be deviant or, or you know, horrific, uh, but it, it's totally possible now. I mean, you hear of, of I think, of all those, um, like, rooted doll, like, sculpture things happening. They're finding those in, in the woods all the time. So you know certain types of groups are, are having these meetings you know like a witch rave or something whatever it, it it's totally happening now so i'm thinking if it wasn't the witch or if he didn't murder if it wasn't the murderer it was like a group of of supporters like like a cult or something that, that could have been involved i like that uh, one too i like that a lot
2: actually that has yeah that that that's this is this is i will give them credit for this is the one part of the movie because it's right your own ending Right, right, and and that does make right, it fun, right. which is like, okay, let me and that you bring your own interpretation into it, and that for a viewer personalizes it for sure. So that's a creative uh, uh, idea on their end I to, like to it. kind of develop these different theories, and those are interesting ones. I mean, they're all very plausible. You know, you talk about the cult side of it, the the plausibility after Josh is gone, and then later on you get uh, wrapped up sticks with Josh's. Um, his his uh the torn off piece of his shirt and inside there there's human hair and teeth
1: and i think a couple fingers too if i if i'm not mistaken i don't
2: recall seeing fingers but yeah. i do I, I do see hair and teeth like human teeth mm-hmm. which side side note those are real human teeth oh are they yeah eduardo eduardo the director <laughs> went to his dentist and got real human teeth oh that they had God. pulled from people and put them in there as as a prop it's gross, <laughs> but fantastic at yeah, the same yeah. time. So, uh, that that I like that because you know these li- the tokens start to have a little more. If we go that route and we're thinking about the theory, these little tokens of the stuff start to lend themselves into a more of a occult nature. For sure, because once they get into the woods and they see like the stick figures built hanging from it the makes trees, more sense now. Yeah, it's kind of that's an interesting theory to approach it from. Uh and I like the personalization of it because then I can start to give it a little of my own, like, oh, that's makes sense yeah. and I like that. Yeah. Versus the ambiguity of the ending. So that's interesting. Um there's a well known scene, we all know what it is. It's where the camera zoomed in on Heather's face, right? And we see about three quarters of her face in the frame. Um and this apparently was not a planned scene, um, and she also at the time the actor didn't realize that the camera was zoomed in so much. Yeah, because they just punched it in on a zoom, and it had this interesting composition. Is there any any thoughts on that scene about either the performance or the reality of it, or how it plays into the creepiness of the story?
0: I, I've yeah, far, the, the, oh sorry, the, go the, ahead, Todd. It's her selfie. Oh, sorry. This, I think this is one of the first selfie moments, you know, where we can identify more with this shot nowadays, because it's, it's more, it, it's just something you do every day. But back then, I mean, you never, you never looked in, directly into the camera, right? And, and it's it supposedly is supposed to take you out. But instead, I think that extreme closer drew, drew, draws you in. And you can see the tear and, you know, and, and the fear. um and again, that's a risky shot, because that's, and most people would see that and say, I don't know, this isn't real. But uh, I think it, it, over time, it's it, it's one that has maintained as one that strikes fair uh, and very memorable shot, uh, especially with the, the selfie days now.
2: And I love the tear. <clears throat> I love the snot in her nose. I love that we see her nose hair. I love... Yeah, there it's just because it's it's not meant to be pretty. And I think, Todd, you were alluding to this earlier. And there's so many things that are over stylized and overdone. So I like that they went in with this and we'll call it the first selfie uh, where you're not worried about the over stylization of the shot. Mm -hmm. And you're just worried about what can the actor do in front of the camera to make this feel real. Right. And we'll we'll strip everything else away. There's literally nothing else in that scene, but one person in front of a lens going, how do I do this? Yeah. I appreciated that. I thought it was done really well. And it still has, uh, it still has a creepiness to it. And, and it's still psychologically like that is spooky. Like her performance hits home. And that's one moment where I came out of the boredom. And I was like, whoa, that shit's real.
1: Yeah. Well, it feels real. I mean, it kind of feels like her confession after being so stubborn and pigheaded the whole time. She's like, look, this is my fault. and i am I I s I'm I'm everyone's gonna die now because of me. And it's just it's her kind of coming to terms with it, her apologizing, and it's it's such a great shot, too. Yeah, such a great shot. When
2: you play that into it, which is the apology, like then you know also, oh wow, other people are gonna see this video. Yeah. Her like their their dads, their moms. Whoa, that's deep. Yeah, like, for that's, sure. You know? For sure. Um un- unless, you know. Uh, it is It is Mike and Josh. Yeah, which it could be. And then they just have this memoir Yeah. or this memory, and they'll be able to get the tape later and play it back. Yeah. And know that Heather took all the blame for it. <laughs> Spooky.
1: Hey, guys, I hate to do I got to use the bathroom real quick. Yep, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I hate to interrupt the flow.
2: So, T... Um Here's a question for you directorially, okay? Or actually, let me let me take it back. Here's a question for you on and we we alluded to this a little bit. Most of this film was improvised. And the directors would use GPS to leave little notes for the actors as they went from spot to spot. If you were putting a film together, would you? Wh- what's the intent behind that? Do you find that to be interesting? And if so, what's the risk involved, or uh, the the potential uh, reward?
0: I, I think this this particular film, there wasn't a lot of risk involved because once you show the monster, it gives up, right? So knowing that the director is never going to show us the monster, we're never going to see this manifestation of this witch or whatever is chasing them, whatever is haunting them, um, it's easier for the actors to to react. Um, I think if you're shooting a horror film where you're physically going up against a monster, then you're going to need a shot list. You're going to need a lot more... Uh, I'd say less improvisation, and you're going to need to know a lot more of uh, the mechanics of how you're going to react uh, to a, a totally different situation. So, uh, you know, for sound for footage, a documentary, um, uh, this also being a documentary in style, directing a documentary is a lot different uh, strategy than directing, you know, a horror film. And so you're looking for that natural eye, where you're just you're just trying to find the footage and find uh, uh, find the story kind of as you go along. So it works. I I don't think you need to have that many director. I know ultimately you kind of have a goal where you're trying to get to. Right. Um, But I think so much was different in trying to tell this story versus uh, you know directing uh, another horror type of horror uh, genre film
2: yeah I love that setup. I think it's in interestingly experimental in a way where you're just kind of giving so much latitude and agency to the actors to really make choices, and that goes into the ability to to get into character and just kind of become that that moment that you're learning new things and there was a some research I was doing about this. The three actors would stay in character the whole time. So for the eight days of filming, the 24 hours every day, they were in this mode of just being in that character because it required that we'll say diligence as an actor to be prepared at any moment to improv something or get into something because you were going to get thrown into a situation that required you to quote unquote act and you didn't know when it was coming, whereas in a traditional set, mostly you know when it's coming, uh, there's yeah. the specific call time, you know, you know you're know you gonna shoot this scene, you have this script, you've gone through rehearsals or some kind of lighting design with, you know you know all these elements. And these guys uh, required themselves, really the three of them, to stay in character this whole time. And the only time they would come out of character would be when they had, they literally had a safe word. Oh, interesting! So the three of them, and they all had to say it in order to, for all all of them to break out of the characters. So the safe word was taco, <laughs> and because it required so much, you know, uh, uh, really getting into it and and kind of method acting in a way on their end. The only time they would break it is if all three of them together would re- say, well, someone would say taco and then another person they'd all have to say right, it. Right. and then it would uh, then they could break that moment and that character and, and talk about whatever they needed to discuss so i just i like that you know it's it's real uh interesting uh, as an actor to have to stay in that character for so long and kind of take that method approach and i thought it was interesting that they had a safe word to break out of it
1: that that isn't well not only are they in character the whole the whole time they're the crew I mean the the directors really were more like producers. They were basically directing themselves the whole time. They were the DPs. <laughs> you know, they were and how many times have you been on a set and everything goes according to plan? Even if you have the best AD in the world, yeah. It's going to be, you know, you're going to have problems. Murphy's law. Exactly. And now you're now you're trusting these three people who are trained as actors to be your entire movie essentially. Fill all the roles and to, to put trust and just to be like, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out to me. And I think that's kind of why the story is a little jumbled, a little, it's a little messy, especially when it comes to the lore, because you, you just, they put a lot of trust in these guys to get everything done. They needed done. And they just, they weren't equipped for it. Right. it to me, it's, it's fascinating and terrifying that they would have uh, that much trust in, in these, in these actors, these yeah. no name actors. For me
2: as a filmmaker and having directed some small things, I would, Uh, You know, the last thing I wrote and directed, I I went over rehearsals for five weeks. I sat down with the actors once a week to go over the scenes. Right. Like it was very involved. So it's a very cool approach for these directors to go, hey. And by the way, these are first time feature directors. This was their first film. This was their first feature film. So uh, very courageous on their end to go, I'm going to give a lot of string. I'm going to release a lot of line for these actors to go do their thing. Right. And they executed. Yeah, they did. You know, they, they did. It. They did. Uh, and, and even having to carry the other mantles that they had to, that, that you were just mentioning. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple interesting side notes to this, to this film that I wanted to go over. Um, pull it up here. So apparently <clears throat> we'll get to this because we get to the ending of the, so Josh's, uh, Josh's disappearance, he's now gone Mike and Heather are wandering through the forest. They're basically circling. They can't find their way out. The frustration increases, and you do feel it. You're like, "Oh my! They're never going to get out!" Um, and then they hear Josh. They hear his voice, right off in the distance, yep. and this leads them to a house that is presumably the house of this 1940s old man murderer that took Rustin the seven Parr. kids. Rustin Parr yeah. that took the seven kids in and and killed them, and they're running around this house. Now, this actually is, this is where I got excited again. Yeah. So I had been a little bored, like I mentioned, up sure. to this point. But as soon as I heard Josh come back into the story, I was like, wait, so uh, mystery. Right. Mystery. Wait, wait, wait. Josh is back in. They're in this house. And that whole shot, uh, and what I find interesting is that uh, Heather and Mike separate. If I'm going into a house... <laughs> Now here, here we go with a horror cliche. Totally, because I'm not separating from the one person I know is sane. Does that make sense? In the scariest yes. house that has ever existed, in the middle of the woods. Exactly. Yeah. Me and Alan go into a house, right? T we go into a house and we're scared to death. We've been in the woods for three or four days, unable to find our way out. I'm not separating from Alan, even if I hear Josh, even if I hear Todd's voice. If he's screaming in the Sorry, basement. Sorry, Todd. Like,
1: no, we're going together. We're going together
0: yeah we're going down together right
2: yes so the separation is a a cliche for me i get why they do it because then it builds the mystery at the end with the last shot but they're running around this house and they also run upstairs and they i guess they can't understand the the reverb of josh's voice because i guess
0: not i don't know
2: am i being too technical here todd
0: we know he's coming from the basement are we just trying to elongate it a lot of people up I I think that that was one of the more formulaic, like uh, obvious, like we have to make this kind of choice for the story to move forward. Yeah, these two characters have to separate. Everything's natural, right? They're just reacting naturally, and then this is that was a little forced for me. To anytime, I think for any horror film, I think it's more scary if characters act, act logically, and still cannot succeed in their objective, rather than because of um just being weak and being preyed upon then
2: you're well they and try so to it do it in a with a right and they try to do it with a sense of mayhem because it's they're hearing josh's voice so they're just like what do we do where do we go and that leads to the separation but i agree i think it's a little bit forced
1: unless unless it's josh and mike trying to kill heather
2: here we go back because, to the
1: theory. And it makes that, total sense yeah, That's that, why Mike. That, went,
0: that supports your theory. Yeah,
1: exactly. And this is, I think, and again, this isn't my theory. I've, I've just heard this over sure. the years. And this is one of the bigger points of it because Mike just bails on Heather. Just bails on her.
2: And I'm digging this theory. I know, I am too. I'm the more sorry. I look into I'm it, digging the more into it. Like, yeah, because maybe. then we get to, so they're running around. We get to the final shot. Heather makes her way back down into the basement because she hears, does she hear Mike call? Or did, but, but she gets downstairs to the basement of the house. Mm hmm. In the final shot of the movie, we got Mike facing the wall, Heather screaming, um, and all of a sudden Heather's camera that she's filming with just falls to the ground. Right. There's a flash of something. I tried to pause it and see if I could see a person oh, or a witch yeah. or like a weird thing or, uh, you know, Rustin Parr, like right. some th- kind of thing. I couldn't in the frame by frame. But it's a flash of something. Her, head, her And this is a great shot. We alluded to this earlier where once the camera's still – there's no movement. No, and we know that Heather's been taken out, well, or we would assume. The, and
1: the scariest part of this is when Mike goes downstairs; his camera goes down first, right? And then he stops screaming; yeah. like he's not yelling That's anymore. The and then, but they they are still using the audio from his camera, but they cut to Heather's camera, which is weird because her voice still sounds far away. I don't know why they did that, but you just hear her freaking out and panicking. And you know she's going down into that basement where something just happened, and that's and that's the scariest part because it's like, what are we going to see? What just happened? And what is she going into right now? Right. And then in, in the meantime, you're seeing the little handprints on the walls of the kid. Like it's just it's just could not be a scarier situation.
2: This no, this is a well executed scene. It's it really. Ten, is. I mean,
1: it still gets my heart beating every time I've seen it. I've seen this movie so many times, and it still gets me going. Like it's still terrifying to me.
2: So. <clears throat> Heather, Heather gets taken – or Mike gets taken out. We're not sure what happens, but then we get the – with switches POVs. By the way, the the magical editing that takes place on this found footage is fantastic um, because we're jumping cameras. (laughs) (laughs) It's the witch. (laughs) So just great editing. The witch um, is a great editor. On the found footage. But nonetheless, Mike comes down. Camera gets taken out. Heather comes down. Camera – we see the flash. uh, We see her pan over. Mike's in the corner facing the corner. And then we see Heather get taken out. Yep. So what happened to Mike's camera? Because Mike's... Good point. Right? It's there.
1: Good point. Why didn't we ever cut back to his camera?
2: Why didn't we ever cut back right. to Mike's camera? Because we have the magic of editing right. in exactly. this film. Exactly. And then what happened to Heather ultimately? T, what happened to Heather?
0: I, I don't think she died. I, I think she was taken away. I think because... The, the force like it I, I it made it look like it was porlaine trauma or something but the camera just dropped on the floor and, and it ended. I think you would have seen a hand or if she was taken out if I'm dying like I would get at least turn the camera back on me and get one last look or something so
2: but I, if they think, cold clock you you might just be might be out black
0: oh well, that's true that's true maybe it's a cold clock but you could see blood or something you know.
2: Or is that just your desire to want to see that's something?
0: Not that's my pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my. That was my closure because I was so scared. I was like, "Oh, she did. <laughs> She's
1: good. She's good. She's living out in that she's, house. She's
0: good. She's, she's good. Yeah, she's gonna wake up. She's gonna wake up somewhere in Vermont. You know, in a few days.
2: Exactly. And and Alan, what? So there's T's response to Heather, or the ending shot with Michael. What happened to, let's just answer all three of them, Joshua, Michael, and Heather. Alan, what, what's the what's the thesis?
1: Well, as much as I'd love to say that uh, Josh and Mike killed her and then took off to Barbados or something, I think the witch got them. I think the witch got them all.
0: The witch got
2: them. So then we're believing the lore and the legend.
1: Yes, or, or maybe not the witch uh, exactly, but I think she was probably influencing someone. Or, or maybe it was her, who knows? But to me, to me, it's far more. I like the spooky shit though, so I like it when it's more, uh, more unexplainable. So to me, I like to think that they, that that they're all, they're all dead. She got her. She, they're now they're just part of the legend.
2: The Blair Witch is real.
1: Yeah, Blair Witch is real. For Alan, it's real. Haven't and you seen the sequel? She's totally real, and they show her. It's ridiculous.
2: I have not seen it's the sequel. It's not good. I I don't. Which brings us to a good point because this spawns this. There is a bit of a franchise there. There's actually, I think, two sequels.
1: Yeah. So this, like Book of Shadows, I don't really count that one because that's not really, it's not even the same universe.
2: But there so there's two sequels and also a bunch of video games and other things that are kind of built around mm-hmm. this legend. Um, but I don't think anything ever really resonates the same way as this original one does. Anything later on in the franchises. I was really
1: hoping that Blair Witch, the the one that came out a couple years ago, I was really hoping, because I like Adam Wingard. He's he's a great horror director, and I, I was really hoping, but I think it would have been a good movie if it hadn't been a Blair Witch movie. But they just, like, the effectiveness of sound in the original and the subtle use of sound, they just went over the top i mean it's overly produced overly sound designed it's it's crazy
2: and so cuz and quickly not to get off too far on a tangent but the sequel is essentially a group of people going out to find it's heather's brother right they want right. to they want closure on what happened to heather
1: right she, he he's like emailed a video uh, and he, he's convinced it's heather with the camera like this is like 20 years after she disappeared okay and, and now she's magically he's magically getting an email from her Okay. he's convinced he's still alive. So
2: here's my theory on it. Uh, I believe that I'm here's I I did not go into it thinking this, but Alan has convinced me. (laughs) And I love the idea that Josh and Mike are in on it because Mike never dies. Right. Because he's standing there. Right. Or at least at least how the movie ends. Mike never is dead. And Josh is a mystery. It's somewhat alluded to that Heather crashes and gets cold clocked. Right. For Whether sure. she dies or not, T, we, we, can, we can make our own assumptions, right? And our own interpretations. But I'm loving this idea that basically uh, Josh and Mike are like the Scream Boys from West Cape, you know, like yeah, where they're yeah. setting it all up yep. and running through this thing to take out Heather, who betrayed them in some way years earlier. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> unbeknownst to heather by the way so
1: that would mean that josh and mike actually do secretly know each other before this project yeah and uh and mike for whatever reason is is helping get revenge on heather
2: that's right okay they're in on they're in on together i like this theory i like it too and i'm gonna go with it i like heather's dead and josh and mike have evidence of this whole thing and this there oh by the way this also alludes to my point earlier which is like who's magically editing these two pieces of footage good point it's Mike and Josh. They fucking edited the but, movie. So
1: where? But
2: here's the here's the one thing I I've, it's kind of he's helped. taking umbrage.
1: Yeah, it's 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 held me off from going full blown on in this theory. Where are Mike and Josh now? Do they just skip town? Have yeah. they, like, cause they they got to be, just there's got to be a massive search for these people. So
2: where are they? How do they hide? Well, the, what's interesting about the lore of it is that like. This goes back to this debate because when the movie was made and it came out, there was a literal huge debate on whether it was real or not, yes, and these people yeah. were missing. Right, I mean, so well, much so the mo- to the fact that Heather's mom got letters of sympathy from I people. Saw that.
1: Well, and that was the marketing up at Sundance. Um, they put up missing posters. Yeah. for them, and, yeah, and I thought that was brilliant. I will. I, I am going to say something. I. I I I see a lot of people nowadays saying that this movie was scary because people thought it was real because of the marketing. It was only scary because of the marketing. And I could not disagree with that more. I knew it was fake and I knew it wasn't real and it still scared the shit out of me.
2: I think for me, I'll stay where I'm at, which is I think the marketing actually did have a lot to do with it because what it does is creates discussion. For sure. So as a result, we're talking about is it real? Is it not? Or your buddies like you and Todd's buddies were like, come see this thing because it's getting that word of mouth. And because it has so much mystery to it, it allows people to start conversing about whether it's real or not, and that builds into the story. Well, I, so there is a sense of the marketing, but then if you watch it outside that lens for me, mm-hmm. I still there are moments that are boring and that I don't really attach to, but there are moments that are really scary and psychologically sound, like freaky.
1: Oh, for sure. And I, I think the marketing, without a doubt, contributed to the massive success of the film, obviously, and to the hype and to the cult status, but I, it's not what made it scary for me yeah, at all. Like yeah. at all, like it's a cool thing. And I guess they had like little uh, puzzles and stuff you could solve on the website. And they even produced a full, like an hour long TV documentary about the Blair witch that actually goes into the lore much better than what they do in the movie. So uh, th- all that stuff is really, really cool, but that's not what made it scary for me at all.
2: Perfect. And
1: uh, Todd, did you it, think that this was real it, when you first saw it?
0: Um, I, I knew it wasn't real, but I think for me it was like a dare, like your buddy saying, This is a freaking scary movie, can you handle it, Todd? I was trying to there's a little bit of masculinity toughness trying to play in here. Where I was like, I can survive this film, you know. <laughs> Almost I like a totally
1: Bloody Mary type thing. Dare you to I dare yeah. you to do this, yeah. Go I'm in the bathroom, bathroom and
2: yeah, call Bloody Mary like three times.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: T, you were scared, it, don't it, lie. It, it, I, yeah,
0: okay. I was, yeah, I was scared, but I, I mean, after after having watched it, I can. was like, that yeah, was good too. I was scared, but I can go home
2: now. <laughs> no, that's that's after good. That. So, uh, I, I I like I say, I'll sit I'll sit where I'm at. I mean, I was scared, but there's just a lot of moments that I that I lose interest, uh, and and it doesn't carry the same weight that it did for me and as it does as it did in '99. For me, the marketing was a big role because it created that, oh, what's happening between mm-hmm. everything? And was it real? Is it not? Definitely played into it. But there are moments in there that they build well that don't depend on the marketing that I get scared about. For sure. So I'm kind of in that middle ground. T, um, uh, let's, if you were to rate this film on a one to 10, T, give us your, your outro and your rating. Um, so if it's,
0: if it's 1999 then it's about an eight and the older I get I think the the lower it goes not that the movie gets worse but I guess my what, what scares me in life is is my threshold is a lot higher so I I' would say about a seven on this one
2: going on a seven perfect out a seven out of ten Blair witches no seven out of ten Rustin Pars. Yes, yes, seven Rustin Pars out of ten. Oh, seven kids. There you go. Seven out of ten kids. Well, T, uh, thanks for joining us from the backwoods of Washington State.
0: Oh, yeah. And go walk in the woods now.
2: Now you can go walk in the woods by yourself. Make sure you bring that old Hi8 Sony with you so you can record some things. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to get you on the next cast. Oh, we'll do. All right, man. It's good talking to you. Okay, thanks. All right, we'll chat right. soon.
0: Okay,
2: Bye. So that's Todd Mayatani, filmmaker, film or writer, filmmaker, film instructor up in uh, Central Washington University. It's nice to have Todd on the cast. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Alan, here are the ratings. Okay. We got. We're going. We always go Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, interesting score here from the critics at eighty-seven percent. Okay, the audience
1: fifty six. That does not surprise me at all. Not one. Not one. Tell bit. me why. It. Th- this is such a polarizing movie, and and um, I'm definitely one of these people. But no matter, it seems the majority of people either passionately love it or passionately hate it. It's it. There's really not many. You're you're the most in between I've seen. Yeah, probably. But most people either they'll defend it till they die. Like I'm that person. Or they just can't stand it and they... I
2: think it's just because I'm a pussy. And I <laughs> just, you're a pussy. I, I, because I'm I'm a filmmaker, so I oh we right. talked about this before. I am the film apologist. Oh for sure. That should be the name of the podcast. Yeah, I like that. Gabe I like never that. shits on anything too hard because no, he loves because he loves filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I do I do have some things, some qualms with it, some things I don't oh, like. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean it it is
1: it is a mess, like we, we talked about. And it, it is because they put these actors in all these crew positions kind of, I mean, that's just the nature of the way they made the movie, but you're you're trusting these people to, to make your movie essentially. And then it's just an exercise in editing. It, It really feels like they put the story together. They tried to piece the story together in editing totally.
2: And I, you know, as an editor, that's the one, the one thing I do as a freelance, that's the primary thing, right? Worked on projects in other capacity, but editing is my jam. Yeah. I teach editing at the local university I thought they did really well putting it together I editorially.
1: It, it, as far as the lore, though, that was the thing that's missing for me is there's just— I don't know if they just didn't speak to the right people, the right plants in the town or what, but it seems like there is— Like, they're talking about a witch, and then all of a sudden they're talking about a a child murderer. Yeah,
2: there was a little bit... I Actually, the second viewing that I went through on this, I was going, wait, is it the old man that's the lore, or is it the witch? And I was confused about how they related. Right. I think after I watched it again, I started to see those pieces come together, but I would agree with you. In the editing, there was a little bit of lack of cohesion between those two things. And
1: my guess is, and I don't know, but my guess is they basically you know, I had this footage and they had this movie and it's like, we got to figure out how to put it together now. And we only got what we got. Yeah. We can't, you know, there's nothing else we can do about it, we'll piece it together as best we can. And then
2: that's Which why I is like the filmmaking. Exa- exactly. You go film man, exactly. and you're like, here, we got a bunch of, we got a pile of sticks over here. Right. Uh, right. Let's build uh, a fort. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: the, the fact that they didn't have a full on script, they only had an outline and they had basically these actors running all, you know, being the crew members, being the actors, being the directors, essentially, and the fact that they got as much of the lore and exposition as they did is actually pretty impressive. To yeah,
2: um, and that comes from a lot of their experience. I was doing a little research on these two directors, uh, and they were both uh, very interested in in lore. So they had like, since they were kids, they were always interested in like Bigfoot and yeah. Sasquatch and Jersey Devil and all these different lores that are out there um, on whether things, aliens, just mm-hmm. anything that had to do with uh, legend. Where do you rate it then? We got, we got 56 from the audience, 87 from the critics, so they came in pretty hot. Where do you put it on a 1 to 10? Um,
1: I can't put it as high as Chainsaw because that's my favorite, but I'm going to go 8.5, eight and, and I think it's just basically the missing lore, the, a, couple, a couple things here and there, and it is kind of a mess, and that's why I can't go any higher, but 8.5. And, a half, and that's, For me, that's pretty damn good.
2: So we're at an at a 8.5 from Alan, a 7 from Todd. Um, the audience comes in, like I said, it's, um, so on their, on their IMDb rating, they're at six and a half. Okay. Right? That's the IMDb rating. Um, I'm looking at this movie in a lot of ways. I, I am a bit of a fence sitter cause there's things and pieces that I like about it. And then pieces and things that I'm just like, they're too outdated. They don't translate to True. the 38 year old me. When I was 18 watching this in 1999, I was interested right. and it had, it resonated because we hadn't really seen anything like this in the theaters. We hadn't seen anything that generated this conversation. Right, right. In this way. I loved that they did that. I thought their marketing, as we know, was, was real genius. Um, and then from a filmmaker standpoint, there's things that I like about it and things that I can't stand, and they're boring. <laughs> so I'm actually going to come in uh, uh, at a five and a half. Okay.
1: That's about where I figured you'd put it.
2: So because that puts me just slightly above average because right. the average would be five or the halfway mark. Sure. So it puts me just slightly above that. Um, five and a half. Just just because I think that's – there's things that get me and then things that pull me out. Oh, for sure. But I honestly think as a horror movie – and the other thing is like here's – you know, well, this is Horror Month. Mm-hmm. So we've we've discussed – and just to, to recap, we've gone through a night, The Nightmare on Elm Street the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Fright Night, and then we took on the Blair Witch Project, way different type of film than any of the other previous films Definitely. that we that we've analyzed over the month. Um, but d- the other ones to me are all rewatchable. Mm-hmm. Like I mean I would all rewatch Nightmare, I'll rewatch Texas, I'll, re- I'll rewatch Fright Night. Sure. I'm probably not Overly stimulated to go rewatch Blair Witch every year.
1: See, that, it's just so interesting because I do watch this every year. I watch this and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre once a year at least, and it, it's the movie that that kind of sparked. I'm I'm my guilty pleasure is found footage. There're not many that are done well, but it's it's kind of just something I love, and I think it's. Directly because of this movie.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it those are all influenced off of this film for sure. And I like that you brought up the research on those other films. So anybody interested in kind of seeing where some of this might have begun mm-hmm. before Blair Witch, those are interesting films to look at. Definitely. Uh, one that I and what's interesting is I watch something like Paranormal Activity, and uh, really enjoy the film. Right. It's really it's it is frightening and and not even to the point of like complete, but it's scary. Yeah, uh, and, and I don't find myself losing patience with it like I did with Blair Witch.
1: Yeah, they, the pacing is much better. It's more kind of constant throughout. I mean, from the very beginning. And I actually watched my girlfriend and I watched uh, Paranormal Activity right before we watched Blair Witch, and uh, she she never watched Paranormal Activity, and she's like, I, I she was one of those movies. She's like, I don't know if I can watch it. And she did it, and she was like, it was a, it was good. You know, it was scary, but it wasn't that scary. Then we watched Blair Witch, and she's seen this is the third time she's seen Blair Witch still far more scared from the blair witch than paranormal activity
2: interesting yeah it must just be the and what do you think that is the lore of the character the 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 spookiness of being isolated in the woods or just not really believing in the supernatural in a house uh do you well, know what she I mean? definitely
1: believes in the supernatural okay. so that's why i thought it would kind of mess her up yeah but uh i i can't speak for her for me the acting is better in blair witch like without a doubt there are some moments in paranormal activity where it's like ugh.
2: I would agree entirely, and that's one point on my 5.5 score that I might go, I might even bump it up for the acting, because I thought they did a killer job. I thought the acting was phenomenal. I think we highlighted some of those points. For sure.
1: And then the other thing is the ending. The ending of Paranormal Activity is just not very good to me. It doesn't hit as hard. When... And I don't know if you remember, but at the end, she looks at the camera and smiles and it's like, ugh, like it was better when you don't know what's going on, when you don't see what's going on. In
2: that case, yeah, they might have uh, learned a lesson from a film like this and left it with a little more right. curiosity. And, that, and I,
1: I really do believe that the ending of Blair Witch Project is one of the best endings that I've ever seen, at least.
2: Well, look, Alan, I'm going with this complete theory. I'm all in. I like it. I'm, a, I'm You can see by my score, I'm, I'm five and a half. I think you should watch it. Anybody who's interested in films and listening to the podcast would look at this film you got to watch it it's something because of it's a rite of passage which is like oh this is a new thing it kind of originated a genre of of its own or a side genre yeah and so you got to go watch it for that reason um but it's not a rewatchable i'm not going to continue to watch it over and over like i would other horror films sure um so I'm i'm gonna sit at that five and a half um but the blair witch project um Go check it out. It's the twentieth anniversary, so it'd be fun to go watch it if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, next week, as we finish out Horror Month, we are gonna go back to a classic that we've all seen, maybe. Um, and we're gonna we're jumping into my territory, uh, the place that the hugest admiration for this filmmaker. And I'm not the only one. I know I don't stand on a pedestal in that because I know other people are joining me with this ad- admiration they have. And we're gonna we're gonna jump into Kubrick, we're gonna go The Shining. Shining, nice. Keep it classic, keep it eighties. Yep. And we're gonna discuss The Shining next week, so tune in for that. Uh, go watch The Blair Witch Project. Uh, any uh, any other any other thoughts on this?
1: No, I just I, I'm just the opposite. I think you should rewatch it every Halloween. I love it, especially if you live near the woods, like Todd right now, man. I would be watching that movie constantly, or maybe I wouldn't.
2: Or you might not.
1: Cause I might not because he's, he's, he's right in the He's literally,
2: and you should see these pictures. He's literally right in the uh,
1: You know what? I probably wouldn't then. By himself. By himself.
2: He's got piles of wood <laughs> ready for winter, you know, where you can oh, cut yeah, and no put thanks. it in the fire.
1: Never mind. I. I, I no. uh-uh. So,
2: anyway, uh, this is the Blair Wedge Project. This is the Tame Aperture podcast. Um, next, next week, we're going to be discussing The Shining by uh, masterful film director uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, anything. Pertaining to the podcast, you can go check out the website. Uh, The website's www.tameaperture.com. We're streaming on all platforms from Google Play to Apple Podcasts and, of course, on YouTube and Facebook. Go check us out at www.tameaperture.com. And thanks for listening. We'll we'll, uh, jump in back to it next week with The Shining.
0: The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.